Hello, and welcome to a new podcast for the Lancet Gastroenterology and Hepatology. I'm Gavin Cleaver, and today we're discussing neurostimulation for functional abdominal pain disorders in children. So I'm delighted to be joined today by a lead author of a new paper on this. Please, will you introduce yourself? Yes, my name is Adrian Miranda. I'm a professor of pediatrics in the Division of uh, Pediatric Gastroenterology at Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, Medical College of Wisconsin. So how common are functional gastrointestinal disorders in children and abdominal pain-related disorders in particular? Well, I, I think it's, uh, they're very common. It's important to differentiate between functional uh, bowel disorders and functional pain disorders. Functional pain disorders are, are defined as a group of functional gastrointestinal disorders that have pain as a driving symptom. So disorders such as irritable bowel syndrome, functional dyspepsia, functional abdominal pain, not otherwise specified, and abdominal migraine are very common. Um, certain school studies have demonstrated a worldwide prevalence of functional abdominal pain disorders of 8 to 14 percent using a specific Rome criteria. So, you know, in the U.S. Uh, general population, it's estimated about 13 percent of children and adolescents need the diagnosis for at least one functional abdominal pain disorders. So, certainly IBS or irritable bowel syndrome is the most common uh, and with, uh, with the, uh, most of the studies uh, showing anywhere from 4 to 7 percent of all school uh, children. So that you can, you can imagine how common they are since they account for about 52 percent of all consultations for uh, pediatric gastroenterology in the United States regarding children and adolescents. No, absolutely. And so what's the current managing approach for, for these pain-related disorders? It varies. In the clinical setting, the, the decision on the most appropriate treatment is usually based on an attempt to alleviate the, the most debilitating symptom. So uh, not all children with chronic abdominal pain require treatment, and I think that that's an important point. Certainly, uh, pain can oftentimes be mild, episodic, and, and, and not interfere with school or activities, and can be self-limiting. Um, so it's important to remember that, and, and, and as with any chronic pain disorder, the treatment may require uh, physical reconditioning, exercise, thought reprocessing, and so non-pharmacological approaches are often used, but in terms of medications, there's little evidence for most of the medications that are commonly used in children. In fact, there are no drugs that have been approved by the Food and Drug Administration for the treatment of functional abdominal pain disorders. Uh, have only, there's only been seven randomized clinical trials uh, in children for functional abdominal pain disorders, and this is a span of 60 years. So the decision on the most appropriate pharmacological treatment is, is, is based on adult studies or empirical data. Medications such as uh, amitriptyline, uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, antispasmodics, or even medications such as ciproheptidine are often used. And the data are mixed as far as the benefits in children. Uh, several medications are used based on adult studies. So th th these include uh, uh, other medications that are used for irritable bowel syndrome, such as linaclotide, lubiprostone, or even antibiotics, such as rifaximin. I find it, I've always found it very interesting that you know, therapies such as cognitive behavioral therapies, biofeedback or hypnosis that have been shown to be as effective or sometimes even better than pharmacological therapy are seldom used um, and, and these therapies are not easily accessible uh, and so that's a major reason uh, we use pharmacotherapy here in the United States. I'm right, so your study specifically examines neurostimulation and particularly in neurostimulation of percutaneous electrical nerve field stimulators. So could you explain to us a little bit on top of what you just said about the, the rationale of this particular approach? Sure. 
So um, we had heard reports of this type of therapy having meaningful results in terms of alleviating chronic pain as well as post-operative pain. And we decided to start with, with a study in animals and try to find a mechanism specifically. We wanted to find out if we could modulate part of the brain uh, in the limbic system, a part called the amygdala, which is involved in the emotional component of pain and also involved in descending pain modulation. So uh, the amygdala has been uh, shown to be altered in, in connectivity in other parts of the brain in, in adults and children with functional pain, functional abdominal pain disorders, as well as other chronic pain disorders in adults. So this was found doing connectivity analysis with fMRI and, and other investigators have shown this. And our preliminary studies in rats suggested that indeed we, we were able to reduce the firing of amygdala neurons as well as in the spinal cord, by up to 50 or 60%, with even just 15 minutes of, of uh, nerve field stimulation. Uh, these animals also showed a reduction in visceral pain. And that's when we started to get really excited about this technology. We had, we had a mechanism. We knew we were modulating central pathways. And so you know, this, this really makes sense because the external ear has uh, at least four cranial nerve branches. Um, and most of them go to the brainstem, a part called the nucleus tractus solitarius, which works as a relay station in the brainstem. From there, it projects to other, to influence other higher order structures and modulate pain. So it, it, it was somewhat surprising to find the effects on the spinal cord in animals, but physiologically, it makes sense. And in essence, we were communicating with parts of the brain to the periphery, and you can imagine the implications of this for the future. Um, so our, our most recent studies in both animals and humans suggest that we are also modulating the vagus nerve, which is incredibly exciting and opens up a whole new world. So that was kind of the rationale for doing this clinical trial in children and see if we can actually improve pain over time, and not just improve pain, but would it be sustained over time at the end of treatment. Right, and so in your specific trial, you randomly assigned participants to using the active device or to a sham treatment. So what did you find? One group was treated with four weeks of neural stimulation, the other with a sham device, basically a replica of the active device, but without any electrical current. Um, and, and both groups were similar in age and gender and specific diagnoses. Um, so I think it's important to mention, too, that a total of uh, approximately 76% of patients had failed one or more medications commonly used to treat these disorders. And this somewhat gets lost in the paper, and, and this suggested that these patients were more severe and sometimes refractory to pharmacotherapy. So our analysis showed a significant difference between treatment groups with a greater change improvement in, in, in not just worse pain, but a composite of the, of the uh, pain scores. The pain frequency severity scale um, really incorporates multiple aspects of the pain experience, uh, including limitations in activity and health-related quality of life. So we were able to show significant improvement in, in usual pain, uh, in worse pain, and composite scores of pain. Um, one of the outcomes that was very important for us was the percentage of patients who had achieved the clinical response at week three, defined as, as the patient who had reported a decrease of 30% uh, in usual or worse pain from baseline based on the pain scale. Um, and this was important because it's, it, it's based on recommendations of the Food and Drug Administration and the European Medic Medicines Agency for clinical trials in patients with IBS. So um, we, we showed that approximately 60% of patients in the active treatment group met this criteria, proven of more than or equal to 30%, compared to the sham group, which was 22%. Uh, we also saw improvements in global symptom improvement and disability measures at the end of treatment. 
about 73% in the treatment versus 34% in the sham had a symptom response score of at least two or greater at the end of three weeks, which is considered clinically meaningful. Um, and so uh, at the end of the trial, 12 weeks, uh, an average of nine weeks uh, after the end of the study, we, we, we again brought the patients back into clinic uh, to, to see if, if this was persisting uh, in terms of their improvement. And what we saw was that indeed the pain and disability uh, uh, improvements in, in pain and disability uh, uh, persisted at the end of treatment. Um, and so the, 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 we did not see a persistence in improvement in the 30% improvement, but we did see it in, in, in pain over placebo and in disability as well. So with these positive findings, um, what's next then? What are the clinical implications for, for treatment of these kind of disorders? Well, there's definitely a need to expand treatment options, particularly in children. And as pediatricians, we, we've always you know, followed what our, our colleagues in the adult world do. And I think this is one example where gastroenterologists that take care of adult patients um, should take notice as well and perhaps consider this approach as an alternative to pharmacological therapy particularly since most of the patients in the study were adolescents. Um, there's still a lot to do, particularly investigating the uh, optimal duration of therapy and the specific patient characteristics that are predictive of clinical responses, such as nausea and other comorbidities. But the implications of this type of non-invasive therapy go, I think, in my opinion, beyond just functional pain disorders. Uh, treating chronic pain without narcotics is something that is critical at this point, given the current opioid epidemic here in the United States. If you think about the central mechanisms that are involved in chronic pain, there's really no reason why this approach couldn't be used in other chronic pain disorders. In fact, 